0: It's so good to see you. I wish I could see you in person, but so good to see you guys, all of you. Wonderful. Today I am going to talk about power, power of some of the bodhisattva practices, some of the practices that make the bodhisattvas powerful, and one of the things I wanna say at the beginning is that uh, our practice is very rational. It's a rational uh, way to liberation, rational way to deal with our human mind and tendencies. And I, uh, I had the privilege a long time ago of studying with Thomas Cleary who died very recently. And Thomas Cleary has made access to our Mahayana Buddhist texts possible. He was a great translator, translated the Flower Ornament Sutra, the Blue Cliff Record, um, Shoya Roku, Book of Serenity, so many things we would not have if Thomas Clary hadn't translated them. He was a wonderful guy and very um, committed to Zen practice. And I studied with him independently in Oakland while I was living at San Francisco Zen Center. And the rational part of our practice was extremely important to him, knowing that it It isn't just boundless and ungraspable. It's also very straightforward. But rationality requires, to be really rational, requires an openness of mind, openness to new information, and an acceptance that things change and our opinions are in flux. We have to always be open to new information in order to be rational, truly rational, And part of what I'm seeing, I think we're all seeing in our world, is the limits of being rational based on a narrow understanding of reality. So we're seeing the Taliban, which has a very fixed idea of what is rational behavior, all sorts of religious fundamentalism is based on a belief that they're making rational decisions about what is right. And that kind of... um, narrowness of decision making I think we have access to liberating ourselves from that so one of the thoughts I had this morning while we were sitting together in zazen actually the mind sort of bubbles up a thought and the thought that bubbled up was certainty is a trap and so when when I feel certain it's harder for me to recognize my own certainty as a trap but it's a little bit more easy to see it when other people are manifesting certainty. I am certain about this. And then, alas, when we're being rational, you can't argue with somebody who's coming from certainty. It doesn't, I haven't found that it works very well. So it works better to come up alongside that certainty and try to kind of work with it. But mostly what that requires, in my understanding, is a tremendous amount of patience. When people have entered the realm of certainty, the rest of us get to practice patience. So what I wanna talk about is this interplay between boundlessness and the the sort of edges of our practice, because we can say that Zen practice is to be aware in your life as it is, uh, to abide in presence, to be open and bear awareness to what's happening. This is Zen. But what is the cutting edge of your practice in the middle of this boundlessness? Where is the, where is the edges? One of the beauties of having centers like San Antonio Zen Center and Houston Zen Center is that a center, a location, automatically provides edges for our practice. It provides something for our open mind to interact with. So, for instance, having a practice, a form of walking into the Zendo and bowing, that's actually an edge being provided for us, or bowing to the cushion, or getting up when you hear the bell. These are decision points in the middle of a boundless mind, and part of what makes Soto Zen so strong, why such a... Uh, an important practice in the world is because of that interplay between the boundless mind and the edges that we provide in practice. All of our relationships with each other provide edges. Meanwhile, there's also tremendous joy and happiness in our practice. In fact, joy and happiness are fundamental elements of the awakened mind. So, watching where our edges come up in our understanding of Zen um, and watching how we react to it and remembering that joy and happiness are part of this whole picture. It makes for a very interesting stew of practice. But joy and happiness are the fundamental elements of our practice. This is the teaching of the Buddha. And the Buddha also teaches responsibility for our actions. It's called karma and I was thinking about this word, uh, responsibility. It carries a lot of moral weight, doesn't it? Responsibility. And it's a very interesting word because it has two words in it, response and ability. And our teachings, our Zen practice, are, to, are very intentionally aimed at uh, increasing our ability to respond increasing the breadth of our response ability and to accept full responsibility for everything. So this is one of our edges. And this comes, it can be told to us, but it also comes from our practice, from realizing, getting a taste of the interconnectedness. When we realize our interconnected mind and we realize all of our actions have an impact in the world This is responsibility. Also, everything has an impact on us. So that idea of responsibility or helplessness or the way we understand responsibility could be one of the cutting edges for people in practice. Is it comfortable or is it a cutting edge to think responsibility for everything? But responsibility um means that when we realize liberation we're also able with every action to provide ease for others even if we don't know it we're providing ease and in real liberated practice this responsibility is the other word for responsibility is power our actions have power they have influence so back to these edges, Dogen Zenji really understood this relationship, and he saw in uh, one of his writings, it's especially apparent, the Bindoa, that for wandering monks in his day in Japan, 13th century Japan, there were a lot of them wandering around in a state of boundless liberation, and this was rather problematic so in Binduwa, he's trying to draw them back in to understanding the necessity of zazen, of the kind of edge of zazen, sitting still in, in your place is a big edge in our practice. And he did not not recommend the four Brahma Viharas, but I kind of want to bring up the four Brahma Viharas because those are the teachings that the Buddha gave to help people realize boundlessness, boundless loving kindness, boundless compassion, boundless joy for others, boundless equanimity. So the practices that lead us into this boundlessness are available for everyone. And then Zen comes along and tells you that clinging to the boundless mind is problematic. So he provides this edge that if we, stay in boundlessness, we don't see how we're really thinking about things. We don't see our impact on others. So usually, I actually, yeah, I saw this one time in Japan when I was practicing at Oshinji with Hirata Roshi and he we had his session every month and um, he pushed people to drop everything his, one of his mantras was, don't let your cushion get cold. So you're sitting all the time, dropping everything, working with koans, trying to enter the boundless mind. And finally, one of the monks had a big awakening that Harada Roshi acknowledged, gave his stamp to. And then in this boundless mind, the monk, it was just before I arrived, so I would never met this, this person, but... Um, In boundlessness, he realized free and open and perfect as it is, and so he left the monastery to wander around Japan with his boundless mind, and Harada Roshi commented on that. He wasted it, and he didn't really elaborate, but that's what he said. The experience had happened to him, and in Harada Roshi's opinion, he wasted it. So he wanted to see his enlightened disciples work in the edges of monastic practices and work in the container and and cook that understanding. So usually when edges are introduced in practice, they feel kind of similar to the edges people have worked with in the past, we've worked with in the past and we have a chance to see how we respond to somebody saying, here's a limit to your practice. So one edge is when you realize, when we realize that we're kind of essentially responsible for everything in the world. Uh, One way of relating to that is to think, okay, I'm responsible for everything. And I have to do everything. And the bodhisattva, who takes on that attitude can get tired out very quickly. So that's one way of relating to that realization. Another way to relate to the realization of our responsibility is to take on responsibility and think that others aren't doing enough. So I will do even more, tire myself out because others are simply not doing enough. That's also a mistake. And then there's another way. There are many ways, but one other one is it's not possible I'm responsible for everything. I'm returning to helplessness. So our understanding of our interconnectedness continues to cook. But bodhisattvas who are tired out by intentional good actions have teachings to help them. Bodhisattva, even great bodhisattvas, grow. They keep growing. And one of them who kept growing is our beloved Avalokiteshvara. So Avalokiteshvara, um, great bodhisattva compassion, boundless compassion, took on the responsibility of going to hell and saving all beings in this particular hell. There are several hells in Buddhism and you work your way through them or you come back. It's You're not permanently there, but Avalokiteshvara realized it was her or his, but Avalokiteshvara goes back and forth, um, took on the responsibility of saving all the beings in hell. So she, I'll say she for now, did that. She got them all out of hell, job done. And she turned around to look and myriad beings were flooding back, coming from another door into this hell. And her head exploded. And Amida Buddha, who's the protector of Avalokiteshvara, gave her a new head. So she went back to work. I've got to do this job, save all these beings in hell. She did it. She turned around. Married beings were flooding back into the hell realm. Her head exploded. So this happened 11 times until finally uh, Amida Buddha gave her a non-exploding head. And then the statue that... uh, Represents this particular um, story of Avalokiteshvara. has 11 heads. So it's a beautiful statue. And then there are uh, 10 other faces around it. And then on the very top, there's a little image of Amida Buddha. So that's our Avalokiteshvara understanding what responsibility means, understanding that Amida Buddha has to help her and it's going to keep going on. This is my life. Avalokiteshvara learned. And Avalokiteshvara also um, has the representation of a thousand hands and eyes. So thousand arms surround Avalokiteshvara and each one, there's an an eye in the palm looking how to help people. So one of the ways of understanding that responsibility is he, we'll say he in this case, is gonna help everybody sitting serenely see all problems and respond appropriately with the appropriate tool in that hand. One way to understand it for us bodhisattvas is, are we willing to be just one of the hands of Avalokiteshvara? And maybe not even the most skillful hand, maybe just the hand that gives a dollar to the person on the street or the hand that sweeps this corner of the room, sees this kind of problem but knows that there are thousands of other hands helping. So we're just one of the helpers. So Zen, with our practice of the edges, helps bring us back down to size in our conventional realm, opens us up to boundlessness and brings us back down to size. And then we get to live in our world with our family and our friends in the conventional world, with access to the boundless and completely open source to new information, so the rational decisions that we make are based on continual new information coming in, and we make um, decisions that are more like probabilities than like certainty. We're not going to achieve certainty. I feel we're going, but we will achieve more usefulness. So for the bodhisattvas, again, they're growing, even though they're super powerful and we've got them on our altars and I'm in my office and there are whole bunches of bodhisattvas looking beautiful, but they're all growing. They're not Buddhas. They've decided to stay here, help us and continue to grow. They're changing all the time. So they never stop practicing the six paramitas. They never stop. They never stop past practicing generosity to cultivate the attitude of generosity, ethics or discipline, refraining from harm, patience, the ability not to be perturbed by anything, energy or diligence to find joy in what is virtuous, positive or wholesome, meditative concentration, not to be distracted, wisdom, the perfect discrimination of phenomena all knowable things and then in addition there's four other paramitas and these are mentioned often in the avatamsaka sutra and all, flower ornament sutra and also in the samdhi nirmochana sutra so the seventh is skillful means upaya eight is power bala paramita Nine is aspiration, and I'm going to say something about aspiration and hope. And the 10th is primordial wisdom. So bodhisattvas continue to practice all six of these, and it's like a dynamo of practice. So our friend Avalokiteshvara appears again in the Samdhi Nirmochana Sutra and asks the Buddha a very interesting question. She says, how is it that bodhisattvas continue to advance along the path? Buddha tells her, Avalokiteshvara, it is because of four aspects. Bodhisattvas are skilled regarding the blissful state of nirvana. They are able to quickly attain it. But, Buddha tells Avalokiteshvara, who's wanting to advance along the path, Having given up up both that quick attainment and that peaceful state for the benefit of sentient beings, they wish to undergo for a very long time the manifold sufferings that arise without cause and without purpose. Therefore, they are called those who progress by way of extensive aspirations, those who have auspicious aspirations, and those with the force of aspirations. So... Pavla like all the bodhisattvas, wants to learn how to keep advancing in skill in helping people. And the Buddha says, you learn how to achieve nirvana and bliss, and then you learn how to give it up and to willingly undergo the manifold sufferings that arise without cause and without purpose that we're going through. And therefore, bodhisattvas are called those who progress by way of extensive aspirations those who have auspicious aspirations and those with the force of aspirations and i think we could use the word hope there they are called those who progress by way of extensive hope those who have auspicious hope and those with the force of hope so for me what the buddha, what the buddha is telling avalokiteshvara is that the power of hope is one of the the tools of of, uh, bodhisattvas. And aspiration, which also means free choice or the choice to seek the responsibility and the power to help, bodhisattvas vow to remain in the world with its manifold sufferings. And then uh, Buddha, Buddha goes on to teach Avalokiteshvara the subtle meanings of the six paramitas that we and bodhisattvas work with throughout our practice life so i'm going to tell you a little bit about them but with the with the hope that that we allow edges to arise because some of us like different paramitas some of us feel more comfortable with different paramitas, and some of us see an edge in different paramitas Um, there's one other thing yeah okay So Buddha wants to teach Avalokiteshvara about these paramitas. So Buddha tells Avalokiteshvara that each one has three aspects. They're not boundless. They are boundless and they have parts. So generosity has three aspects. This one we hear quite often and it's, it's quite beautiful. The first is giving material things if people need material things we give giving dharma if people need teachings once their material needs are calmed give teachings and then the third is to grant fearlessness give fearlessness the second paramita ethics has three aspects ethics that pre- that overcomes non virtue okay we practice ethics in order to deal with our habits or our blind spots. The second one is ethics that engages in virtue. And Thich Nhat Hanh's translate or recitation of the precepts has this active quality. He doesn't just say bodhisattva does not steal. He says, do not steal and give to others. So that's the second part of ethics. And the third is ethics that engages in the welfare of sentient beings. So those are two distinct things. Virtue for oneself. We practice ethics in order to clear up our own karmic stew. And then we practice ethics for the benefit of others. There might be edges in there for us. The third paramita is patience, which has three aspects. There's that enduring quality, patience that endures injury. There's another kind of patience that does not consider one's own suffering at all. Stories of the Buddha enduring in previous lives, enduring all kinds of tortures. And third, patience in discerning the Dharma. Not turning away, but patiently staying with difficult teachings. And that third one also has three aspects. The patience in exploring the Dharma. Not being frightened by the teachings of emptiness not being attached to the extremes of nirvana or nihilism. And three, being firm with respect to engaging in practice. Four, the fourth one, effort, has three aspects. Effort that is armor, effort applied to virtue, and effort applied for the welfare of sentient beings. So that imagery, effort that is armor, this has beautiful explanation. Effort that is armor has three aspects. Putting on the armor of great love. The second is armor that is the steady force of great compassion. And three, armor that is the steady force of great effort. So that's what these bodhisattvas are wearing as their armor as they stay in this world of suffering. They have the armor of great love and the armor of the steady force of great compassion, and they can go anywhere. Then there's quite a bit more about effort. I'll just say that effort applied to virtue has three aspects, which are relying on the meaning with great faith, relying on the meaning of these teachings, the meaning interdependence and uh, the power of the precepts and so on. Engaging in virtue with great practice, and infusing all sentient beings with great dedications as we did when Colin did the dedication for service. We're always sending out the merit from our practices with these great dedications. And the fifth Paramita is concentration, which has three aspects. So concentration, samadhi, meditative stability. The first is the samadhi of blissful abiding that is an antidote to suffering and affliction and the afflictions because it is non-conceptual and peaceful. So the fifth paramita is to be abide in and an antidote to suffering because it is non-conceptual and peaceful. The second is the samadhi that manifestly achieves good qualities because while we're in concentration and samadhi, good qualities are cooking. And third, samadhi that manifestly achieves the welfare of sentient beings. So that's the dynamo that sends the samadhi out to help others. The sixth paramita has three aspects. Wisdom, first is focusing on conventional truth. The second is focusing on ultimate truth. And the third is focusing on the welfare of sentient beings, which means that for the welfare of sentient beings, we abide in the conventional realm or the ultimate realm. And both those teachers, Dogen Zenji and Harada Roshi, uh, were trying to bring practitioners who were kind of attached to the boundless back into alignment also with the conventional for the benefit of all beings. So in this long section, Avalokiteshvara says to the Buddha, why are are the six paramitas always presented in the same order? Why is generosity first and ethics second and patience third? Why is that? And the Buddha says, avalkiteshvara, it is because the six perfections serve as bases, bases for progressively higher achievements. Through generosity, bodhisattvas do not focus exclusively on their own bodies and physical resources. And thereby, they attain ethics, which is understanding interdependence. Those who practice ethics and guard their own moral practice become patient. Those who have patience initiate effort. Those who initiate effort achieve concentration. And those who achieve concentration attain wisdom that transcends the world. That's the Buddha's explanation. So what about these four additional paramitas? The Buddha says that that seventh one, upaya, skillful means, the ability to use one of these hands and eyes to adapt, to respond skillfully. Buddha says that that one actually assists the first three perfections and increases their power. So the first three are generosity, ethics, and patience. Skillful means makes those even more beneficial as the bodhisattva develops in skill. Number eight, aspiration. And the Buddha says, this assists the perfection of effort. So Buddha, so this is a very important passage for us because we have big challenges in our world, as Avalkiteshvara did, because people just kept flooding into hell. Buddha tells Avalkiteshvara that bodhisattvas may not be able to make all the effort necessary to overcome afflictions. We vow to save all beings. So Buddha says that bodhisattvas may not be able to make all the effort necessary to overcome afflictions. And this paramita of aspiration enhances the effort. We aspire to be more effective. We aspire to save all sentient beings. We hope to relieve suffering. We aspire to heal the world. So the Buddha says that that's the power of the bodhisattva, not giving up hope. And then that aligns itself with our effort. It's not that a bodhisattva has all thousand hands and eyes, but they don't lose hope. And the ninth paramita is power. And the paramita of power assists concentration, the Buddha says. And achieving the power of reflection over the excellent practices is the perfection of power. So the ability to actually see clearly um, the six paramitas and the world as it is, is the perfection of power. It takes power to see clearly. And the 10th paramita is exalted wisdom, which simply assists the perfection of wisdom. And it clearly sees the nature of reality. So bodhisattvas are growing in, in, a, in a dynamo of practice inner practice, outer practice, inside achieving greater clarity, outside becoming more beneficial. So all of these aspects are in play throughout all of our lives as practitioners. And I have an example of how we used it to make a decision. I know you guys have made a different decision, but I'll tell you that we discussed whether or not to return to lockdown when the surge happened. And we we were very rational. We have many scientists, and we discussed what the situation meant. We got in lots of data. And um, how do we respond to the situation in order to protect everybody who comes and all sentient beings and not become a, a hot spot? And we discussed our safety committee discussed the consequences of returning to a, a lockdown, but we have found that the consequences for the mental health of our members was very great during the lockdown, especially the ones who lived alone. And we require everybody who comes to be fully vaccinated. And to now we've returned to wearing masks, but we balanced the mental health consequences of going back into lockdown against the precautions that we would take and the And the clarity about requiring vaccinations and we decided to stay open although not quite as fully packed so we used and in our discussion many edges came up for people there were a lot of opinions and but we came to a consensus that we would stay open and help the mental health of our members and uh, be careful so we use these we use the our discussion of these edges and boundlessness to inform our decision and that's our experiment and we will see what happens so this, this this decision for us sits in the middle of the bodhisattva path of practice our aspiration to provide refuge support and nourishment to sentient beings and decisions like this all the decisions we make create edges temporary pathways in the great boundless mind of reality. But it also shows our understanding that the six paramitas turn in multiple directions at once. When we practice the paramitas, we're turning toward benefiting others. But actually, when we practice them, they're benefiting ourselves. So I am really glad to be with you. I really wish we could have met in person. But Next season, perhaps, we'll be able to meet in person and talk about these things together. And I hope you're all healthy. You all look very healthy. Good, so far. Ronnie, okay, thank you. Thank you all very much. Enrique, Yoshin, Karen, Chikai, Christopher, Azul, Sarah. So good to see, and Dokan. good to see you all. So we'll do the uh, after, uh, I'm sorry, uh, questions first. Uh, if anyone has questions for Galen, Roshi, and then we'll do.